Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I talk to Patrick Hanks about his book, Lexical Analysis, Norms and Exploitations, in which he sets out a theory of word use and meaning that aims to accommodate some of the creative potential of language. In this interview, we discuss some of the motivations and implications of such a theory, and explore some of the difficulties that lexicographers confront in trying to establish precise definitions of words. In particular, we focus on how corpus linguistics serves to clarify the nature of this challenge, but also offers some pointers as to how it can be met. And we discuss how the necessary fuzziness of lexical boundaries poses a problem for some linguistic approaches. I'm delighted to welcome Patrick Hanks to talk about his new book, Lexical Analysis, Norms and Exploitations. Patrick, this work synthesizes and draws upon a wealth of linguistic and lexicographic experience. Does it represent a career summit of sorts? Yes, it does. Um, I've been a lexicographer all my life, and uh, I was I edited the first edition of Collins English Dictionary. Then I was lucky enough to be involved in the startup of Corpus Linguistics uh, on a large scale with the Cobuild Dictionary, and then I became chief editor of Current English Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. So for thirty years, for over thirty years, I was doing lexicography, and at the same time reading widely in linguistics and puzzled that people studying semantics uh, seem to have so little to say to lexicographers. So that was the case, and certainly until I became involved in the Coville project with John Sinclair, and uh, Sinclair really had an effect on uh, my future career. Central to the work uh, that you present here is the theory you developed, the theory of norms and exploitations. You're arguing for a reconceptualization of word meanings as events, and argue that words in isolation can be better construed as having meaning potentials. Could you sketch out that difference? Yes. I think we can take that back to uh, John Sinclair's observation that many meanings depend for their realization on the presence of more than one word. So what a corpus linguist does is study words and meanings, but looks at how they're realized. And we find that, well, for example, that uh, blowing your nose is different from the wind blowing, but it's still the same verb blow. And you might think that a nice checklist of senses of blow would work quite well, but actually uh, it turns out to be more satisfactory to look for the patterns of word use first, then attach meanings to the patterns, at least as far as verbs and adjectives are concerned. Uh, And so we're looking ahead to a whole new kind of dictionary where the word is an entry point to a pattern and the meanings are are attached to patterns. Would it be fair to say that your your motivation for exploring this idea is uh, largely informed by this notion that lexicography has struggled to capture meaning, possibly because meaning contains something or comprises something that is rather different to what we would normally assume when we're, for example, trying to put together a dictionary. Yes, 
Yes. When I entered lexicography, it was we still had uh, a good 18th century view of meaning as static, abstract objects, which could be listed. When we started looking at the evidence in serious detail and in large quantities, when we started to get large electronic corpora, where we could sort many, many uses, where we could get the computer to sort many, many uses of each word into different orders, we start to see that uh, there's a great deal of repetition, normal usage, but there is also a great deal of variation, and the variation appears to be motivated, and sometimes it's very much more creative than uh, linguistic theory uh, of those days, and indeed of the present day, uh, allowed for. So we had a situation, we have a situation where standard linguistic theory both predicts constraints uh, or selectional restrictions uh, that are not really restrictions at all because they are extended in various ways, and at the same time, the irregularities that we observe in word use, in ordinary word use for communication, are much more irregular than anything predicted in, let's say, generative lexical theory or indeed cognitive linguistics. So we have a problem at both ends. The irregularities are more irregular than we expected, and the regularities are more regular, occur more often than we expected. So this uh, motivates your view in which the, uh, the regularities are, in some sense, identified as norms as being something like the prototypical uh, meaning of words. Is that fair? Yes, exactly so. So the motivation of the book was the long, slow discovery over a long period working as a lexicographer that you can't state necessary and sufficient conditions for word meaning because there's all sorts of variation, and that the variation itself is principled in different ways. And so we needed a new theory, both to account for the regularities that go into dictionaries and to guide lexicographers on what not to put into a, a dictionary and to guide language interpreters, I mean ordinary listeners and uh, readers, to give them principles for understanding uh, creative uses of words. The category of exploitations then contains things that are not only very exotic and idiosyncratic, like very creative uses of language exhibited by writers and so on, but also very familiar uses, some of which, as you point out, we wouldn't necessarily even think of as being exploitations or creative uses. Yes, that's exactly right. So at its most mundane, an exploitation is just using an unexpected word in a place where the pattern would normally require a word of a particular semantic type. To give an example, it's perfectly normal to urge people to do things and to urge horses in particular to go in a particular direction. You find sentences about urging a horse up a hill, urging the horse down the lane, urging the horse over the bank and so on. And then it extends out to camels. You can urge your camel forward across the desert. Then it starts to 
become interesting uh, from the point of view of exploitations because you find people urging their bicycles forward. Well, a bicycle doesn't have the sort of cognitive mechanism of a politician or a camel. Um, and uh, then it gets even more interesting. You can exploit that meaning of urge in sentences like urging the washing machine to keep going. So you have anomalous arguments. This is very mundane. It's very widespread. And, and it was not previously recognized. What now needs to be recognized is that there are normal patterns of collocation. What you normally urge is a person or a politician. Uh, secondarily, you urge a horse, which is the oldest meaning. It uh, goes right back to Latin. But then you can exploit it. In, having established that pattern, you can exploit it by putting unexpected words into the direct object slot. And it goes on like that. It gets more complicated until you end up with some really complicated uh, exploitations. But they're still rule governed. Indeed, yes. Um, a theme that arises in this connection and which recurs throughout the book is the, is the point that even though there are quite exotic one-off examples in corpora, people in, people in various lines of theoretical linguistics have tended to overstate how much variation there typically is. Do you feel that's been deleterious to the progress of the enterprise? Uh, yes. I think that corpora, corpus evidence, when we look at how words are actually used, we, we are in for some shocks. There are two ways of investigating a corpus. One is to have a preconceived theory and then look for evidence that supports it. But a more, uh, a more dynamic uh, activity is to try to keep an open mind and to hold one's theories as lightly as possible and see whether they are confirmed or disconfirmed by the corpus evidence. And what we find is that the corpora contain highly regular repeated patterns of word usage, uh, but also a small percentage, something in the order of 10% of each word use as a generalization, is irregular. And of course, the, there's no absolute sharp dividing line between uh, regular and irregular. It's just some norms are more normal than others. Some explo exploitations are more irregular than others. That's how it goes on. And that's what the both the theoretical linguist, the language teacher, computational linguist has to cope with because that's the reality of ordinary natural language in use. Yeah. You're cautious about uh, trying to draw any sort of psychological conclusions or offer a psychological theory of this, but I did wonder whether there was, um, in your view, likely to be some kind of maybe slightly sharper dividing line between uh, norms and exploitations at some, at some level of representation. Are norms perhaps privileged in some way? Oh, I think norms are privileged uh, and we we need reference works which state what the norms are. And it comes as something of a surprise to uh, linguists and other researchers to discover that uh, dictionaries don't actually state what the normal patterns of usage are. And this is largely because uh, electronic corpora are by in lexical graphical time frames uh, are of comparatively recent origin, and 
uh, the lexicographers haven't got around to describing the norms yet. That's one problem. Um, the other problem is that there isn't a sharp dividing line between a norm and exploitation. You have to decide almost arbitrarily, in some cases, whether you are going to describe the norm so broadly that it allows all sorts of unexpected uh, arguments or all sorts of unexpected co-occurrences, or whether to define it so narrowly that you exclude some perfectly ordinary statement. I'll give you an example, a very simple example, which I use quite often, and I use it at the beginning of the book. Um, if you take the verb hazard, uh, both uh, corpus evidence and introspection tell us that what you normally hazard is a guess. Every English speaker knows that. Now, do we say that the norm is people hazard guesses, or do we say, do we broaden it and say uh, people hazard speech acts? Because we also find people hazarding conjectures, well, that's just a synonym of a guess. There's also in the British National Corpus a line about pe people hazarding an attempt at a definition, which I think is what lexicographers do. And then you find more and more speech acts uh, being used as you extend your corpus evidence or your corpus search. You find all sorts of words still denoting speech acts being hazarded. And then in British English, at least, you find it uh, being used even with uh, a that clause. He hazarded that. Um, the prime minister might be wrong. And with direct speech, not hen chicken, I hazarded, is one of the lines in the British National Corpus. It's clear that what's going on is that people are doing some sort of guess. But where the dividing, whether you say hazard speech act is the norm and exploitations are go beyond speech acts, or whether you say the norm is uh, hazard a guess and define it as narrowly as that and then treat all the other uh, lexical items and uh, phraseology as exploitations is a, is, is a matter of choice to which there's no one correct answer. There's no way of saying it is correct only to say that you hazard a guess. There's no way of deciding what to rule out and what to put in. It's a judgment that has to be made by each language describer or each uh, lexicographer uh, on the basis of the evidence, but also on the basis of what kind of application is being created. Are we writing a dictionary? Are we writing a machine translation program? If so, does hazard translate into the target language, hazard as a verb? Does it uh, translate differently in different contexts? So there's all sorts of factors going on. Certainly, yes. Um, the impression I have is that although lexicographers have always been very aware of this of this difficulty, and as you say, can be kind of characterised into lumpers and splitters according to the way in which they handle multiple senses or proliferation of senses, it's my impression you think that lexicographers have tended to take their eye off the ball as far as this is concerned and uh, sometimes made decisions that aren't very consistent or aren't very helpful with respect to the way the language is actually being used. Yes, but I think that's because they're uh, living 
Well, lexicographers, they're living with an outdated theory, and many lexicographers claim that their work is atheoretical. I used to say that lexicography doesn't have a theory or doesn't have any theoretical implications. That was really before I discovered prototype theory in the uh, 19, in the late 70s and early 80s. And one of the things that uh, lexicographers of the future need to do is to link the patterns of usage, which can be seen as phraseological prototypes and can be discovered by corpus analysis, with the meanings, which can be regarded as cognitive prototypes. The meanings, or as I would say, the meaning potential of each word. Um, the, so how does the, how do the meaning potentials of words get realized? What are the contexts? What are the normal contexts? in which those cognitive items uh, actually get activated. That's a lexicographical task for the future. The mention of activation reminds me to ask, when we use an exploitation, do we get activation of the collocates of the corresponding norm? Yes, you do. Uh, because if we take a verb like launch, you've got this interesting tension between uh, cognitive salience and uh, social salience. By social salience, I just mean frequent usage. And by cognitive salience, I mean ease of recall. And the verb launch, uh, somehow cognitively, I want it to mean put a boat in the water. Uh, somehow that seems primary. I don't know why. Partly it's because it's concrete. If you say, okay, well, that's very domain-specific, it's only in shipbuilding and lifeboats that we launch boats and ships, and a ship is launched for the first time and that's it, whereas a lifeboat is launched quite often in its lifetime, uh, that all sort of starts to get interesting. But you might say, well, that's not the normal meaning. The normal, the normal use of launch is launching rockets and projectiles and things like that. Now, interestingly, if you look at dictionaries of the 1940s and before, that meaning of launch is completely absent because they weren't launching missiles in the sense in which we now do it. But here's the point. those Neither of those, none of those senses, none of those uses that I've just mentioned are the most common use of the verb launch. The most common uses of the verb launch are launching a product and a project and launching an attack. They are much more socially salient. In other words, the usage of launching a product, launching, a, launching an attack, uh, launching a project, uh, they are very frequent. So why, I don't know if you share this intuition, but why do I have the feeling the intuition, that those are somehow metaphorical and launching a ship and launching a satellite or a missile are somehow primary. Perhaps because, as you say elsewhere in the book, the, uh, the single or, or several personal experiences can very substantially shape the way you think about a word. Yeah, well, I've never launched either a boat or a missile, but uh, I know what you mean. Uh, so it's the collective... It's the Jungian collective unconscious experience of launching boats and uh, missiles rather than a personal experience, I think. Or maybe it's the experience of reading about it. Is that what you mean? 
Yes, yeah, something like that. I mean, you suggested that that at the, uh, the for example, when when you were growing up, the the bulk of existing literature, for example, would refer more often to launching boats than to launching missiles, for example. Yes. Whereas over the course of time, that gap has narrowed and maybe now been reversed. Yes, and of course, what we see is a corpus of usage in the 1940s and earlier. Uh, is so that we we can so we need historical corpora that will tell us whether people were launching projects and launching products into the market um, even as long ago as uh, fifty or a hundred years ago. That would be interesting, and we don't yet have sufficient evidence. So there's a lot of work to be done in corpus linguistics. And presumably, there's also a possible experimental angle here, in as much as one could test whether. Uh, particular norms are activated for a, for a given language user. That you know, in the case of, in the case of launch, it would presumably be possible to test whether whether the meaning of boat versus the meaning of rocket or indeed attack is more activated when you encounter launch in the sense of launching a product. Yes. Which might vary from person to person based on what you're saying. Yes, or indeed from moment to moment. Um, I think you're making a very important point here, um, which is that all our all our language use is domain specific. So the notion that there's one big overall English language end of story is a really a gross oversimplification. There's the language of missiles and there's the language of uh, satellites and there's the language of lifeboats and there's the language of shipbuilding and there's the language of uh, commercial activity and then there's the language of there's the military language of attacking people but you don't have to be a military person to attack to launch an attack um, but it helps (laughs) I mean you're going to get all sorts of interesting variations uh, uh, relating to different domains in exactly the way that you've suggested. And that presumably has implications as well for the lexicography because it, it suggests that perhaps the best we can do in terms of a general dictionary is not just one that carries general uses of language, but in, which in some sense is attached to this, the, 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 if you like, the Jungian gestalt that you mentioned, the idea of uh, that, that it's representative of what the average member of a speech community thinks about a word. Yes, yes, and there's an interesting tension here because on the one hand we do want to reach for some generalizations that bind the whole community of users of English together and mean that I can, I've never spoken to you before today and yet I can rely on you understanding in quite some detail what I mean. And if you were Australian, I could do the same thing again, but perhaps with some other adjustments. Um, so that's uh, that's at one extreme. We need we need to preserve this idea that there is, that there is a generalised norm. But I think we need to do much more research on uh, domain specific usage, including domain specific usage that every member of the language may or is, is able to engage in. In other words, you don't have to be a nuclear physicist to understand at least some of the talk that uh, emanates from nuclear physics. Indeed. 
my impression is then you would see the trajectory of lexicography following the trajectory of the philosophy of language away from uh, the kind of view espoused, as you discussed, by Leibniz and others, uh, towards that dis- discussed by late Wittgenstein and uh, the ordinary language tradition. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I think um, there are some really important theoretical threads that lexicographers can build on and that future linguists uh, will need to take more account of. Of course, many do already, but those threads come out of the philosophy of language, Wittgenstein, as you said, also Hilary Putnam's questions about whether a three-legged tiger is really a tiger if a tiger is defined as a four-legged animal. These kind of ludicrous examples, but uh, they make you think. And when you start reading dictionary definitions, you can see the poor old lexicographers reaching for statements of necessary sufficient conditions for set membership. A spider is uh, an eight-legged creature with this that characteristic. Um, And if we find a seven-legged spider, do we say it's not a spider? Of course we don't. Um, So these are not necessary conditions. And the question then is, all right, well, then how far do the exceptions extend? How variable are the conditions for set membership? And remember that lexicographers have to define, uh, they they used to want to define sets such that all and only the items that that satisfy the conditions of set membership would be eligible. Now, what we're trying to do, or what we've recognized for quite a long time, is that uh, we are trying to state conditions for typical set membership. And then, of course, the question is, what is typical? Where's the boundary between typical and atypical? Where's the boundary between typical, which includes probable usage, probable future usage, and atypical usage, which is still possible. So there's a boundary between the probable and the possible, which is really important in this context. And you mentioned in passing that this um, this fuzziness kind of afflicts even the work that attempts to get around the problem. I'm thinking of your discussion of the work by Anna Vizbitska on the natural semantic metalanguage uh, and the problem that, that that appeals to like in its reductionist definitions. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so Vizbitska tries to uh, rescue um, Leibnizian necessary and sufficient conditions by saying that climbing Anything like this is a case of climbing. Anything like that is a case of a train. Uh, But using the the word like is, of course, cheating because it introduces variability and prototype. And that's exactly what what I'm trying to, to introduce in a more theoretical method. The other thing to say about Anna Vizbitska's theory is that she believes that the meaning of all all words in all languages, all content words in all languages, can be reduced to, I think it's about 60 semantic primitives, semantic primes, irreducible elements. 
and she argues that these are undefinable. And as every lexicographer knows, um, you can, of course, define irreducibles like move, you, but what you do is just uh, increase the circularity of your dictionary so all words are defined in terms of all other words. So I think Wierzbicka's notion of a set of semantic primitives as irreducible elements of meaning out of which all other meaningful terms are constructed needs to be questioned. You talk about the importance of, of distributional considerations in, uh, in informing our sense of what a word actually means. Um, in that context, you discuss in Chapter 9 intertextuality, and later on you also make the observation that some specific examples of usage linger in the memory. Um, these ideas both sort of hinted a view in which meaning can be something that's very personal and very dependent on individual experience. What do you think we can say about such meanings, or are they out of the reach of study? I think everybody has their own private idiolect, which is slightly different from every other person's. Uh, the risk, of course, is that if, if that extends too far, we end up like uh, Lewis Carroll's Humpty Dumpty, who claims that uh, when he uses a word, it means what he wants it to mean, no more, no less. And Alice questions whether whether you can use words to mean so many different things. And Humpty Dumpty thumps the table and says, the question is, which is to be master? That's all. Well, of course, Humpty Dumpty's problems is, of course, he can use words in all sorts of bizarre ways, but nobody will understand what he means. And uh, so there is a fundamental convention of meaning and use or of word use associated with meaning in some way, which I try to elucidate, that we all rely on mutually in order to understand one another. But as you say, the understandings we get are necessary, necessarily partial and probabilistic, and of course maybe may be wrong, because our experiences may not tally. Yes, yes, that's true. If our experiences of uh, a particular word are widely different from other members of the language community, then we risk being outside the community and not being able to communicate with other people, not, which is, of course, the whole point of using words is to, is to engage in some kind of communicative behaviour. You, you discuss in brief the implications of that view for the idea that meaning resides in a text versus meaning being a property of, if you like, the speaker's intention. My impression is that you're fairly uh, fairly reluctant to impute meaning to text. You don't. Uh, you're not particularly attracted by the idea that the text means whatever we as readers take from it, and so on. Ah, oh, yeah. Each individual can make their own interpretation of a text, and there's no absolute safeguard that says that is the correct interpretation of this text, and all other interpretations are wrong. People used to kill each other over interpretations of texts, for example, of biblical texts in the past, uh, there was believed to be a right interpretation of certain texts in the Bible. If you disagreed with me about how to interpret a text, um, then you must be uh, in league with the devil, is the extreme inversion, and therefore I have a right to kill you if you disagree with me. We, we've got a bit beyond that. Uh, but 
well, as the French structuralists observed back in the 60s and 70s, the text is privileged. Well, John Fowles also said this somewhere in uh, when discussing one of his novels. Um, it's now commonly accepted that text is privileged. We can each make our own interpretation of it. Some interpretations are so bizarre uh, that... Most of us would reject them, but you're entitled to hold your bizarre view if you want to. Uh, you're likely to rule yourself out as a member of the language community if you do. Some interpretations of text are so boringly obvious they're probably not worth stating. Part of the art of textual criticism is to say interesting things that are somewhere between those two extremes and at the same time uh, not to assert it as if it was the only God-given truth. This um, links back in some way to the to the idea that what's central for a program of language, in your view, is to focus on instances of actual usage rather than instances of imagined usage and possible interpretation, uh, something which you feel has been overstressed in many traditions of uh, theoretical linguistics in recent years. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I, I think that is fair. Linguists invent evidence habitually. Uh, somebody, I think it may have been Jeffrey Sampson, but somebody said that linguistics is the only discipline claiming to be a science in which it's regarded as permissible first to invent some evidence, then to interpret what has been invented, and then to claim that something of general validity has been discovered. So I'm very much uh, in line with people who think we should look and see what actually goes on. Now, the problem in the past uh, was that we we could find examples of actual usage, but we couldn't tell whether they were normal or whether they were exceptional. But now the size of electronic corpora is so vast that we can actually see the connect the conventions emerging from the corpus. Uh, sometimes it takes quite a lot of work to work out or to decide what the convention is. In other cases, it leaps out and it's blindingly obvious as soon as you look at some data. But the other extraordinary thing is that when we invent examples, we seem to find it difficult to invent examples of ordinary typical usage. There is a tendency for human beings to be aware of the unusual and not to be aware of the usual. I mean, think of it in terms of touch. If somebody puts his hand on your hand, you're aware of it. But if it's been there for a while, you tend to forget about it. And I think we're maybe we're hardwired hardwired to notice the unusual and uh, to bury the familiar much more deeply, and therefore it's more difficult to to recall to the conscious mind. But however that is, um, invented examples, I know because I can remember when I started in lexicography, it was fashionable to invent examples. And some of them, when you come back to them, they look unnatural and you start thinking, why is that so unnatural? And I've mentioned John Sinclair before in this interview. So Sinclair wrote a paper called Naturalness, uh, which argued that textual well-formedness well is an independent variable from 
syntactic well-formedness, and uh, there are all sorts of gossamer-thin constraints on normal word usage, uh, which we're unaware of. So inventing examples is a very dangerous practice. And certainly my experience in lexicography is that that is true. Invented examples, especially invented examples that try to show the boundary between one norm and another, tend to be very unreliable. Yes, I'm very sympathetic to that view. Um, I suppose another point of divergence between your corpus-driven work or your, your corpus-driven theoretical approach and the approaches of, for example, generative grammar is the question of whether there is or isn't a clear dividing line between what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. Uh, would it be fair to say that experience of actual usage inclines you to the view that there, there is no such dividing line and actually it's almost impossible to make generalizations of the kind that uh, generative linguists have sought after? Yes. For most of my lifetime, uh, generative linguists have tended to debate uh, about acceptability judgments. And they have, a, in the past, they had a tendency to assert that uh, one form of words was acceptable and another form of words was not acceptable. When you compare those acceptability judgments with what actually goes on, you find that in some cases they've asserted that that locutions are acceptable when, in fact, we find no evidence for them. And in other cases, we find linguists of the speculative schools uh, asserting that um, uh, certain uses are, or certain locutions are unacceptable, and you go to the corpus and you find masses of examples. I'll give you one example. Every time that there's, a, there's an excellent book published in the 1990s, early 90s, on verb classes and alternations. It's excellent on alternations by Beth Levine, but her verb classes are based on what she imagines to be word behavior. When you look at the word behavior that she attributes to each verb and you compare it with what goes on in the corpus, every time I look, I find some claim that is just not true. She says, for example, that the, the verb grasp is a verb of holding and therefore you can't use what she calls the conative alternation, which is to grasp at something. But in addition to the uh, idiom grasping at straws, the corpora are full of expressions like grasping at the mantelpiece, grasping at the bedpost, grasping at the edge of the wall. And, you know, this is just... Well, Beth Levine has been, she's a very eminent linguist, but she's just been misled by her own intuitions because our intuitions are very unreliable guides. Yes. Uh, do you think that's a problem of introspection or do you think that might reside in that difference of experience? No, I think, no, no, I don't think it's a difference of experience. I think it's a, uh, the problem of using introspective evidence. Now, the problem fair and square arises from uh, the notion, firstly, that there's a sharp dividing line between acceptable and unacceptable grammatical structure. There isn't. It's, it's vague. And secondly, that we can access normal linguistic usage by consulting our intuitions. 
and astonishingly, turns out we can't. And although you're somewhat sympathetic to the uh, construction grammar program, my impression is that that has, in your view, been liable to some of the same problems. Is that correct? Yes, this is this is a some this is a bit of a quibble, but yes, construction grammar I think is extremely exciting um, theoretically. I just wish they would use real evidence and not invent the evidence because every now and again they stumble and fall over, and they assert that certain usages are normal when they aren't, and that. Uh, and that's not just a matter of experience. It's a matter of you compare what they assert with what is in what can be found in uh, corpora or in texts, and you find there are discrepancies between their beliefs and uh, actual behavior and actual normal behaviour. A thing that recurs throughout your book is is the idea that the syntactocentric approach to linguistics has tended to think of the lexicon as some kind of um, repository of exceptions, in some sense, where there is maybe very little prospect of bringing order. Do you see it in that kind of way? Do you feel that, the, for example, the, the subtleties of the differences between certain words in their subcategorization, in their, in their selectional restrictions and so on, really makes it very difficult to state generalizations? Or, or do you think that there is... There are patterns that we should be bringing out. Goodness, what a lot of hairs you have started in my mind. The first thing to say is I have a deep-rooted objection to the term selectional restrictions. There are no such restrictions. There are selectional preferences. Uh, It may seem like a quibble, quibble, but it turns out to have far-reaching theoretical and practical consequences. We have to recognise that The constraints are constraints of preferences, not of restrictions. Uh, What what did you start with? Uh, Let me see. To track back, um, whether the view of... I think you you mentioned Bloomfield, I think, in this context. Yes. Uh, The view of the lexicon as a a repository of, in some sense, of of exceptions, of ordinances, was... uh, was how it was, really. Yes. So way back in the 1930s, Leonard Bloomfield said that um, that the lexicon was just a, a list of basic exceptions to the grammar, and that has certainly been the view traditionally until quite recently. What we see going on at the moment, largely but not exclusively under the influence of cognitive approaches, but also under the influence of text text linguistics and corpus linguistics, uh, we, we see a switch from a focus on syntactic structures to a focus on lexical structures. How are the words actually used? How do words collocate with one another? How do they go together? And the problem with the focus on syntactic structures is it was excessively algebraic. It was driven by a, a belief that the words just slotted neatly into place uh, at the end of, at the bottom of trees. Uh, And in fact, what we we now know is that each word has a life of its own, but there are patterns of word usage. And uh, researchers like myself and Michael Stubbs and Mike Hoey and, and indeed Alison Ray, there's all sorts of people now looking at lexically 
focused uh, theories of language rather than syntactically focused theories. Perhaps an extreme case in that direction is the kind of work in computational linguistics which would essentially say that all there is 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 distributional patterns that in some sense we could dispense with any other kind of concept of meaning and say meaning is is simply a consequence of the of the environments or if you like an emergent uh, property which we imagine based on the environments of of co-occurrence and so on for, for words and for lexical items and so on uh, but my impression is you, you think that view is, is too reductionist to be tenable. Yes. We live in an age when statistical methods are, are having a heyday. There are some astonishing successes in, for example, in machine translation, which are knowledge poor and which don't rely on any concept of meaning, but just uh, take the statistics of phraseology phraseological distribution in one language and compare it with statistics of phraseological distribution in other languages and come up with really quite impressive translations. I think we're living at a time at the moment when the pendulum has swung far out in favour of statistical methods and some very clever people are doing some very impressive things. I believe the pendulum will swing back and uh, knowledge-rich methods will come back into fashion. And then the question is going to be, what sort of knowledge do we need? And uh, the, among the many sorts of knowledge that we need are, are going to be meaning-motivated knowledge. What can we believe a writer or speaker means when he or she uses uh, a set of words or words in collocation? I think that's going to be the future, uh, and I think people like me uh, ought to be there, ready, and waiting for that development. So, uh, going forward, what do you see as the as the prospects for your theory, the theory of norms and exploitations? What kind of response are you hoping for, in particular? Oh, I, I think, firstly, there are all sorts of applications. For example... Let's just talk about the semantic web for a bit. There is something called the semantic web and the original vision of Tim Berners-Lee, what, 10 or 12 years ago, was that any bit of text, even something scribbled on the back of an envelope, uh, could be processed linguistically. Now, what's actually happened is that uh, in the semantic web research, texts are tagged, so and it's the tags that are... Uh, processed uh, semantically, uh, not the words. So I think uh, we need to get back to that original original vision of Berners-Lee and his colleagues and look at what the words actually do and say, right, can we get a machine to understand and process uh, by some definition of understanding uh, to understand and process what is being said or written? So there's a huge potential there, and it's very much meaning-oriented, not statistically-oriented. Obviously, what you're going to get is a coming together of statistical methods and semantic methods. And the same in language teaching. Uh, the lexicon has been uh, neglected in language teaching because there's too much of it, and it's easier to teach the grammatical structures 
I, this is a gross generalisation, but we haven't had much success, for example, with the notion of a lexical syllabus um, in language teaching. And the question arises, why not? Uh, and I think the answer is, well, it's too complicated. So how can we simplify? Well, one way we can simplify is to say, what, not only what are the important words that lead learners need to wrap their minds around but what are the important contextually what are the important uses in particular domains domains that the learner is going to be interested in how are we going to distinguish between uh, basic meanings uh, extended meanings and idioms and how are we going to distinguish between a learner's mistake on the one hand and an imaginative, creative exploitation of a normal pattern of usage, on the other hand. I think those are interesting questions for language teachers. So, I, And I hope that my book will have at least a modest contribution to make in provoking thinking about those issues. Indeed, yes. Um, as to your own future work, you mention an ongoing project, the Pattern Dictionary of English Verbs, uh, and give it a predicted completion date of 2045, as, uh, as things stand. Um, what, what might we be expecting sooner? Well, what we hope... Firstly, when I wrote that, I was working alone. I now have got some funding and some uh, colleagues, so we can bring the, bring the predicted completion date a little nearer to uh, the span of my own lifetime, I hope. Um, secondly, we're uh, developing computational methods, which I'm not clever enough to build, but uh, I have some excellent colleagues with uh, expertise in computational linguistics. So we're experimenting with um, using the existing patterns in the Patent Dictionary of English Verbs to, uh, to see if we can predict patterns for verbs that are as yet unanalyzed. So that's one area of, of, of work which I hope we will get some benefit from in the future. The other major area that I think I really, before I, before I pop my clogs, I would like to see, like to make a contribution is to uh, the nature of figurative language. I think there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about figurative language starting uh, with a confusion between conventional metaphors and creative metaphors. Uh, uh, but moving on from there to we need a typology of figurative language, a corpus-driven typology of figurative language. Even more importantly, we need uh, to look at the structure of figurative language and in particular the structure of similes um, Alice Dignan um, observed that uh, although many writers on uh, metaphor discuss uh, sentences like Sally is a block of ice, very few actual metaphors are of that declarative kind. Instead, they set up an image and then they will develop it and exploit it. So, I mean, an extreme example is in... Uh, from Dickens, where Mr. Panks, which which novel is it that Mr. Panks occurs in? Uh, I think it's Little Dorrit. But Mr. Panks is the uh, age is the agent, the rent collector on behalf of 
a large and rather self-indulgent man, Mr. Panks is, early in the novel, is seen as a little busy tugboat in the the port of London, puffing up and down and pushing great big ships this way and that way. And for the rest of the novel, he he steams into his office. He's seen again and again in terms of uh, a steam-driven tugboat. So we've got extended metaphors of that kind. We've got many metaphors are grammatical metaphors. So we squirrel something away. Well, that's a verb, but squirrel, squirrel is normally a noun. But most importantly, we need to look at the distinction between creative dynamic usage and conventions. And some conventions are just secondary conventions, which are metaphors. So we need to make that distinction between different kinds of metaphors before we can start to understand the nature of uh, figurative language. I want to make that contribution. That sounds fascinating. Um, you spoke about the pendulum swinging from the from a theoretical orientation towards a, if you like, a purely computational knowledge poor uh, approach, which at this time has yielded quite promising dividends. But you you see in the future the, as you said, the return of a knowledge rich approach. How do you see the field playing out in the next 10, 20 years or so? Well, I think um, we will eventually, when we look at the output of a machine translation program, just to take one example, uh, at the moment we're absolutely uh, bowled over by the fact that we can get anything out of it at all and that we can understand roughly what's going on in the translated text. As time goes by, we I think, become more and more dissatisfied satisfied with the many failings of machine translation and then the interesting question is going to be well how can they be rectified can they be rectified by blending statistical approaches with knowledge rich approaches and that's something that uh, hopefully the, your work will be able to contribute to in a very practical way in the, in the foreseeable future yes I, I, I would hope so, but it's not something I will myself be doing. I would hope to be working with uh, colleagues in computational linguistics who will be much better at that than I am. And indeed, we're already starting discussions along those lines. Well, you know, both, as a, both as a linguist and as a language user, I look forward to seeing the output of these collaborations very much. Uh, in the meantime, let me say, Patrick Hanks, thank you very much for your time. Chris, thank you. I've been talking to Patrick Hanks about lexical analysis, norms and exploitations. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.